don't think of it as a destination. Think of it as a journey. Don't be afraid to pivot and reinvent yourself along the way. Don't be afraid to fail. You know, failure is as, as long as you're identifying and define what failure is, but also failures lead into bigger successes many times. Now we can all recognize that smart manufacturing in the cloud has become a requirement for strategic planning initiatives, but it also scares us. The entire premise of digital transformation can seem like a daunting task and overwhelming. The good news is it doesn't have to be this way. In this episode, you'll learn how to start your cloud journey and make the right changes along the way. We'll be hearing from Chris Carissimi, CTO at GE Aviation, and Douglas Bellin, the business development executive for Smart Factory and Industry 4.0 here at AWS. Welcome to AWS Industrial Insights. I'm your host, Caroline Lawrence. With each episode, we bring you an inspiring leader with practical advice to help you solve your toughest business challenges. Because we believe that sometimes all it takes is one big idea or one piece of wisdom to change your business forever. So thank you for listening and we hope you enjoyed today's show. Well, first of all, Chris, I just want to say thank you so much for joining us today on the show. Doug and I are really excited to have you here and learn about your cloud journey with GE. Well, well thank you. I'm, I'm extremely excited to be here, and uh, thanks for the opportunity to be able to tell our story. Yeah, absolutely. And it sounds like a really exciting story. So to get started, can you kind of just set the stage for us pre-cloud? Um, what, kind of, what were some of the challenges that you were experiencing? Sure. So uh, I've been with the company for just a little under 20 years and in the industry for uh, just a little over 20 years. And when, when I joined GE, uh, it was a very different GE than, than what we know today, specifically as it pertains to, to information technology. We were a heavily outsourced organization. In fact, most of the work that was done in-house was uh, of the project management ilk and, and we were specifically a waterfall organization that was heavily centered around long cycle uh, IT projects, anywhere from 12 to 24, 36 month projects. And that was essentially what our business clientele were, were used to and, and were expecting. And, and so as, as many know at this point, uh, lots of pains come from those types of engagements and that way of working. Specifically for us, uh, I think two of the key areas that I'll hit were one was just our inability to rapidly change to evolving requirements. So as many people know, when you when you start an engagement, uh, what you know at the beginning, more often than not, it tends to be very different than what you know in the middle and very, very different than what you know at the end. And that's that's mm -hmm. also true with us at GE. We we found ourselves uh, basically unable to evolve to those changing requirements uh, throughout the process of an engagement. And then consequently, we, we would have to make concessions either on timeline, quality, or cost to, be, to try to adjust or mitigate some of those changes throughout the engagement. And so that was, was one, of the, one of the main things we learned. The other thing we learned was really just speed. You know, it, it was just unfortunate that we had to take that much time to deliver value back to the business and to drive business outcomes. So those were two things early on that, you know, I will say we had become complacent with uh, in the mm -hmm. pre-cloud days. And so it was something that I think as we started our foray into cloud roughly about eight years ago, 
we really started to reinvent how we wanted to work and and how we wanted mm-hmm. to deliver. Yeah, you made a good point about speed. I want to kind of come back to that a little bit. Um, what do you think really prohibited that? Do you have some maybe some examples to help me understand that? Sure, it, it ran the gamut right from the you know traditionally how we obtain requirements in, in the waterfall methodology all the way to how we procured hardware within our data centers. Those were just long cycle engagements and. You know, for those that are familiar with the waterfall methodology, it, it was well intended. It was it was to try to mitigate those evolving requirements that I previously mentioned. Uh, but all, ultimately, mm-hmm. we all know that users change their minds once they have a product in hand, and that was something that, despite the best the best of intentions, we were unable to account for. Um, and then, look, hardware is hardware, right? So we didn't have hardware on demand. That concept didn't necessarily exist 20 years ago. And so it obviously required negotiations. It required all the internal capital expenditures, as well as all of the purchase requisitions and all the vendor management and the list goes on and on. And so these are things that, quite frankly, you don't deal with uh, in the cloud. Yeah, definitely. And you mentioned, too, that you were able to reimagine a lot of things. Um, What do you mean by that? Is there, you know, do you mean reimagining mainly just like your IT or did this have a larger impact on the organization? Yeah, so uh, we reimagined everything, uh, to be completely honest. And and it started first and foremost with our people. And so, as I mentioned earlier, we were a heavily outsourced organization. We we actually did not have a lot of in-house talent. Uh, Most of the talent that we had predominantly was in the infrastructure sysadmin space. Uh, maybe in the middleware operations space, but it was not in the software development space. It definitely wasn't upfront with user experiences. And so we had to start there. And it really started with uh, getting a small group of individuals that were internal to the organization uh, that were passionate about building an agile organization, an agile mindset, and a cloud-first mindset. And and really working with those few handful of individuals to to retool ourselves uh, from a skill set perspective. And then from there, we grew that, obviously, from 30 to 100 to 600. And I think uh, we're somewhere around 1,200 researchers, designers, developers, and architects across the globe right now. And then beyond that, we, we went one layer deeper into our operating model. We really questioned what the right methodology was to execute in the cloud. And we knew it wasn't waterfall. And that's when we simultaneously started a journey to become an agile product organization. And so mm-hmm. we spent a lot of time understanding what processes uh, we didn't want to use and what processes we intended to use. So we don't really commit to any specific flavor of, of Agile. You'll see a couple inside of the organization today, and that's okay. But we do commit to the concept of fully enabled, fully empowered teams that are small and nimble and able to pivot with evolving requirements and involving business demands uh, over a period of time. And then it, it went so far as even our rhythms and our communications. So we were a heavy PowerPoint shop. We don't use any PowerPoint really today, and I love that. Uh, We were a heavy meeting organization. We had meetings for meetings for meetings and and all of that subsided. Mm -hmm. And we went really into, you know, the standard agile best practices around daily standups, retros, demos, uh, and and things to that extent. So it was completely rebooting uh, everything inside of the organization from our people to how uh, we engage as an organization, what we like to call our operating model, to what we value uh, it was really a hundred percent pivot in in my opinion. Yeah, definitely. And Doug, I don't know about you, but I feel like I, when we've done a lot of these episodes, it just like continues to surprise me that, you know, every single conversation, I keep hearing the same message that it always starts with the people, it ends with the people, and it comes back to that. Um, so Chris, can you talk a little bit too about your leadership perspective throughout this process and how 
you know, embracing the cloud has really changed your perspective as a leader? Sure. I, I would, you know, I'll start early on and I'm sure you're going to tease a few ideas out uh, for me along the way, but first and foremost, it, it's all about embracing the change as a leader and being a beacon and an advocate for said change. So uh, many people are going to struggle because it's going to feel very alien, at least inside of a traditional enterprise organization. But as a leader, I think it's hugely important that you, uh, again, be a representation of the change, if not the personification of the change, and that you're constantly reiterating your support for people along the journey and that you're creating space for them to learn and, and you're serving as an umbrella uh, for them. So as, as you're seeing some of the traditional pressures inside of the enterprise, be it financial processes, be it communication streams that are you know, incongruent with the new agile way of working, you as the leader have to be the buffer to the organization. Because if you, for lack of better terms, are a sieve and let that float all the way through down to your individual associates and, and your developers on the front line, you're gonna find that they very quickly start to, or stop rather, stop believing in the change and stop believing in the transformation. So for me early on, it was all about personifying the change, embracing the change, advocating for the change at all levels in the organization, you know, with my peer group above my pay grade, and obviously with my leadership team and down into all areas of the organization. So that was first and foremost for me. Um, and there's been many other leadership lessons along the way, but if, for those that are just starting the journey, that's where I would start is, is be a beacon of light for your people and be a beacon of light for the change. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, Chris. And let me, let me, oh, go ahead, Doug. Yeah, one of, one of the things that, you know, you, you'd mentioned is you'd kind of been doing this, you know, complacency, right? It was, hey, steady state, all good. What was the impetus that made that change? And what was an identifier? So others might be able to look and go, you know what, we're at that same stage. And if we don't do this, we are going to be in trouble long-term. It's uh, a great question, Doug. Uh, so let me preface this by first stating a majority of my early career was spent in infrastructure shared services. So I spent roughly over the first decade of my career with GE, uh, building data centers, uh, supporting middleware, and being in uh, the internal infrastructure services businesses for GE. So I say this with the utmost respect uh, as, I, as I talk through our journey here. Um, so the biggest impetus for us was really uh, our an, an desire to become a digital industrial. So at the time, roughly eight years ago, our CEO had basically started to create a, a concept of the industrial internet of things. And so this created a, what I like to refer to as a, a crack in the door. And uh, one that I, I like to believe that we stuck our foot in and just kind of followed uh, as fast and then as, as effectively as possible. So for us, we actually had a, at, you know, the highest of high levels, an opportunity to use that push to, to reinvent uh, GE and, and to reestablish what digital means inside of GE and what a digital transformation means at the highest level. And then we took that all the way down into our respective uh, CEO of GE Aviation at the time. Uh, David Joyce, you know, he was a big advocate and proponent of data lakes. And so that was our first foray into bringing in-house IT. And then that quickly tested our on-prem capability and our middleware operation support capability. And then that then later turned us to, uh, you know, a better way of operating. And, and how could we get more speed and, and drive values for the business faster and, and essentially insert cloud, Doug, if that answers the question. So uh, there was multiple, I'll say, 
influences that created a catalyst for us to be able to start this journey. And, and I, you know, I cannot thank those individuals enough and everybody that was involved because it really created a, a, a crucible for lack of better terms for us to be able to reinvent ourselves inside a GE and, and, you know, something that I think uh, myself and others are insanely proud of. But if you kind of look back at that starting of where you started was you, you almost worked your way out of a job or into a different job, right? <laughs> it's interesting you say that. Uh, and so, you know, throughout our journey, we actually had to have a, a pretty tough conversation with ourselves with regards to what value do we bring to the business? And, and I think if you consider yourself as the infrastructure shared services team, then yeah, you consider yourself, uh, you may consider, uh, working yourself out of a job. But when we had that tough conversation, uh, Doug, we, we ultimately decided that the value we bring to the business is not infrastructure. The value we bring to the business is digitizing processes and improving internal productivity. And once we pivoted and flipped that switch, it then became how do we find the best in class providers that can deliver infrastructure that meet our requirements at the, at the rate of speed that we need and that can move up the stack with us. So it's an interesting nuance and, a, and yet again, another great learning that we had along the way, uh, which was specific to what business are you in? What, what game are you playing and how do you win? And for us, it wasn't an infrastructure services organization. It was all about driving value for GE Aviation. So it truly was a business discussion, not a technology, or a business offering, not a technology offering. A hundred percent. And that's still tough because I, I will tell you, look, we're builders, much like yourselves. You know, my organization is a bunch of builders and we're quite proud of that. Uh, and so what I like to tell them is, is focus on the new, right? Don't build where others have been. Stand on the shoulders of giants as you'll hear in the industry, like leverage where you can build the unique distinct where possible. And that's where we're spending most of our time these days is the use cases that haven't been accomplished by others in the industry is the use cases that are specific to GE Aviation and or the use cases that drive a competitive advantage for GE Aviation. And, and that's really the, the current phase we are in our journey. So it sounds too like you have to also create an environment that's you know, open to failure and risk and experimenting. Would you say that's true? Uh, 100%, Caroline. So, uh, I, and I will tell you, that was a bit alien for us early on as well. Uh, that wasn't necessarily a part of the GE DNA 20 years ago. And, and so that is something that we've spent a lot of time on over the last, I'll say, half decade to decade, which is really creating space for the teams to experiment and fail. Um, and what I tell mm -hmm. my teams now is, look, it's, it's okay to fail. It is not okay to know why you failed, to not know why you failed, right? If for some reason we expected a certain consequence and that didn't occur, we should have enough wherewithal to understand why. And that is the true learning. And that is still success in my book. For me, a true failure is when you fail and you don't take the time either in advance or after the fact to understand why, and then adjust whatever uh, is necessary, be it technologies, processes, people, to then account and prevent said failure in the future. And so that's that's a big mind shift change for us. It, it was very mm -hmm. important early on, and I'm happy to say it doesn't really come up these days in the conversation, which is awesome. So it's it, for me, it's a, it's a litmus test for the evolution of uh, our DNA and our culture as we've been on this journey. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm I can assume too there was a little bit of a, a learning curve there in all the experimentation. So how were you able to find you know, the right talent to 
experiment in those ways and help with the design? Yeah, so uh, early on, what I, I would say, we, we spent a lot of time reskilling our internal talent. Uh, and, mm. and that worked very effectively to get us started. You know, and I would say when we were in that phase of experimenting in the cloud, uh, but we very quickly learned that we needed to append to that talent with external expertise. And that's where we started to create pipelines uh, in, in various manners. And we've seen great success. So, you know, traditionally, we, we've been on university campuses looking for the next GEers. Uh, but with mm -hmm. the advent of cloud, we started to go into non-traditional sources. So e.g. mid-career uh, organizations that were rebooting individuals. And I'm happy to say we have geologists in the organizations. We have former pastors inside of the organization that have spent time going back and rebooting themselves uh, prior to joining GE that now are some of the best cloud engineers that we have. So what I would say is it's, it's a multifaceted approach that starts with the people inside of your organization and creating opportunities for them to learn and evolve their skills. But I would highly advocate that you evolve, or sorry, that you append to that. Uh, additional mm -hmm. pipelines that are either traditional in the form of, you know, campus recruiting, early hire recruiting, but also non-traditional, where we've seen a lot of success, um, which brings a, a whole layer of diversity to mm -hmm. the organization, both physical and, and from a thought perspective. Absolutely. So, you know, when you first started this journey, how did you know where to get started and um did you kind of lay out like a process of where you, what you wanted to achieve ahead of time? Can you talk through kind of the outline of how you wanted to approach this? Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I wish I could tell you that we had the forward thinking to know exactly how we were going to approach the cloud. But uh, in, in true lean fashion, it was a, a learn by doing experiment. Mm -hmm. uh, so early on, to be completely honest, we just knew that we wanted to get to the cloud. And we didn't necessarily know exactly what our long-term goal was. Obviously, there, there were discussions around moving data center workloads to the cloud. Uh, there were still other discussions around, do we lift and shift or do we fully refactor? Um, and ultimately, where we ended up being early on is we, we started to pivot to more of a new engagement design. So as we were starting to our journey in the digital industrial and Internet of Things, we, we said, hey, that's where we want to build on the cloud first and foremost. And so that's where we, we ultimately ended up. One of the beauties of GE is that we have quite, quite a bit of breadth and scale across all the industrials. And so some of the other business units across GE, uh, e.g. oil and gas at the time, now Baker Hughes GE, is uh, they, they were more of a lift and shift camp. So we were able to share best practices with them and learn from their lift and shift journey. While we took what was originally a refactor journey um, that we then again pivoted, as I mentioned, to more of a new build mindset. Uh, and so we got to share those best practices, uh, share those war stories and learn from each other throughout the journey. And what I'll tell you now is, is we are somewhere in the middle of new engagements and refactoring is, is where we are. And, and I think the key message here for everyone that is either in their journey or about to start their journey is, is a phrase that actually comes from a, a book from an Amazonian uh, head in the clouds called Horses for Courses, which which really says there there's really no right or wrong way to go to the cloud. A lot of people mm -hmm. will, will like to get into what I call the holy war of lift and shift versus refactor versus you name it. But the reality of the situation mm -hmm. is you have to know the goal that you're trying to accomplish as an organization mm -hmm. and the value you're trying to bring. And that goal and that value should really drive your cloud strategy. 
Uh, and, and the Horses for Courses says, you know, look, if, if your goal is to get out of a data center, then maybe a lift and shift is best for you. If your goal is to build fully ephemeral apps that are self-healing in the cloud, maybe it's a refactor discussion. But fundamentally, it comes down to a business leader's decision to, to determine what approach they want to take to accomplish what value and outcome they're trying to drive for their respective business. And then the last thing I'll, I'll append to this concept is don't be afraid to pivot. I think that's that's been our bread and butter since the onset. We, we I like to believe, have pivoted or evolved probably is the better term. I'll say three times and we're about to go into our fourth evolution here. And I think that's perfectly okay. We're constantly mm -hmm. surveying the landscape and we're constantly asking our questions of what's working and what's not. And then we're evolving our strategy and our journey uh, in correspondence to the answers to those questions. If you, if you, Chris, if you th think about your customers, you probably have two, three, four different levels of customers. How do you think your first level customer, the business, um, if you went out and said good, bad, and different, what would their answer be? Specific to the cloud, Doug? The journey, the cloud, how they're reacting to what you've been building for them, the, you know, going from what was complacency to now, which is fast and agile that, you know, look at the biz, the internal business. How do you think their reaction to this would be? Would it be, you know what, didn't even notice any change or this is so much more drastic for us because of this? Yeah, it's a great question, Doug. You, you know, honestly, I think it probably would be a better question specific to the cloud five years ago uh, to answer it in full transparency. Where we are with the cloud right now, it's so prevalent in what we do. You know, procuring infrastructure is no longer a part of the conversation, uh, which I think is yet another litmus test for the success in our journey. And in fact, most of the conversations we're having now are starting to venture into a space that, quite frankly, we didn't have the capacity to have the conversation previously. Uh, so, for example, we're starting to have uh, discussions with regards to how do we connect experiences better across personas, across multiple business processes. And, and this, I know for those that, that follow business architecture, data architecture, you're going to like, yes, that logically makes sense. But for us, who is struggling to keep pace with the demand, those were conversations that we were unable to carve out capacity for in earlier days. And so, so for me, you know, early on, I think they would say, yes, we're no longer waiting 12, 18, 24, 36 months for infrastructure and my DT project. And now I would say, you know, the expectations of our customers have increased to the point where they're looking for the upper echelon conversations that are including both uh, functional and non-functional uh, discussions with regards to how do we build better products to drive more value uh, for the organization with more speed. And so it, it's it's been it's interesting. In retrospect, if you take a step back, it's it's a it's a great discussion, and, and I'm sure for those that have lived through these experiences, always not as prevalent and on the nose when you're when you're in in the moment and your customers constantly wanting more and constantly wanting to to move up the value proposition with you. Uh, but for me, it, you know, if you if you look back, it, it's just yet another great testament to what we've been able to accomplish in the last eight or so years. Definitely. It sounds, I found it interesting too, how you talked about the customer expectation expectations changing. Do you have an example of that? Yeah. So uh, it's interesting. So we're, you know, there's a, there's an application that we're quite proud of that we, we delivered here recently known as uh, Rudder, which is an acronym that stands for read, update, delete, repeat. It's, it's a part of our analytics and diagnostics ecosystem that actually allows us to, to parse snapshot data and, and to kind of tie it all together 
It was uh, an example of a, a legacy application that we very simply could have lifted and shifted to the cloud. And we would have got some economies of scale of, but we decided to take a step back and create space for the team to actually refactor the application with a full cloud native first mindset. And as a result, we were able to actually build a, a fully self monitoring application that uses drift detection and cloud watch to make sure that it's highly performant, highly available, and it can compare its current architecture versus its ideal state and constantly redeploy to make sure we're getting the, the utmost value and utmost uptime to the business. And as a result of that, we, we started to have conversations with the business of how long do you want this function to take or this feature to take or specifically this data response to be? And, and uh, I think the, the business was taken aback at first and, and their immediate answer was, well, whatever it is today, which was in the minutes. And we said, well, we could do that, but you know, realistically, we could also get it to the millisecond. Are you interested in millisecond? And they were, their immediate answer was yes. And, and so for them, it was, better. <laughs> yeah, for them, it was the art of the possible, right? And so yeah. in this journey, we, we've been able to have conversations with the business again. And that's a great example of a, of a non-functional spec that we've never been able to have historically. Now, obviously you have mm -hmm. these conversations and in, in waterfall methodologies, but they tend to get deprioritized when you're starting to cut those quality cost and or um, timeline uh, uh, variables. And so, and so this is something where I think we've started to move up the stack with the cloud and we've started to move up the value stack with our customers, which I think is hugely mm -hmm. awesome. And, and it's something we're quite excited. And it's, it's really where we are as, as an organization and how we try to promote building uh, across all of our new engagements. Definitely. Can you tell us a little bit too about what Rudder is for? Like what's the specific customer application? Yeah, sure. So um, Rudder is actually a part of a, a larger ecosystem, as I mentioned, and it specifically takes what we call snapshot data. So as you fly on planes, uh, there's a couple key data points that we capture through a third party. It inherits roughly 2.5 million data points a day. Rudder is responsible for ingesting that data and making sense of that data and then publishing it downstream for end consumption. That consumption predominantly lives within our, our services organization, and that goes back out to our airline customers. So all of the airlines flying GE engines benefit from all of the value that Rudder brings, uh, either in the form of maintenance alerts uh, and or aircraft worthiness bulletins and, and whatnot. And in some scenarios, they can just make ultimate decisions on how to better fly their planes uh, to prevent downtime for airline passengers. And so it's a hugely important product for us Hence the reason why the drift detection and the self-monitoring, self-healing is so important. If it goes down, you know, it, it creates issues for our end users and ultimately people flying on planes. And so it's a huge application for us. And, a, and again, just a, a great example of the culmination of our journey to date. Uh, one that I'm excited to say is we're going to continue to, to rinse, wash and repeat on. You know, it never ends, as we like to say. Yeah, I mean, that sounds really impressive. Self-governing, self-monitoring. How did you... I guess, set up like that independence in an application. I mean, that's incredible. <clears throat> well, I, I would love to take credit for it, but I'm going to be completely honest. I have much brighter people inside of the organization that are responsible for <laughs> this. Uh, but honestly, you know, as from a leadership perspective, it goes back to some of the key messages that I've already mentioned. Mm -hmm. You know, we created space for the team to reinvent here. And, mm -hmm. and it never would have happened if, if we as a leadership team had not done that. And, and if, our, if our product organization and obviously our, our, our business constituents hadn't agreed to let us do that. And, 
in order to do that, we had to build on a bedrock of credibility. So over those multi-phases of, of cloud delivery, we had established a, a strong foothold with all those uh, necessary peer groups and constituents that allowed us to take a step back and really question what's a better way to do this. So um, what I would tell you is it, it started with the, you know, the, our current mantra of cloud native first. And so mm -hmm. what we said is we wanted to use as many cloud native components as humanly possible in this architecture. And, and we were able to do that across you know, 12 different services inside of Rudder. Uh, and then we wanted to obviously be cloud first uh, after that. And then so we manage a, a few things manually inside of, of this architecture. But for the most part, it's all run in the cloud as infrastructure as code. Uh, which is hugely important. And then the last thing I'll say is people are probably thinking this is a, you know, 300 person engineer deliverable. This is not. This was one two pizza team uh, out of mm -hmm. the UK that delivered this for us. And uh, it was roughly about a, a year of effort uh, through dev and testing and production delivery. And and again, it's, it's just a great example and testament to what we're able to do these days. Mm hmm. Definitely. And you did mention two pizza team. That might be something our listeners are not aware of. Uh, Doug, can you give us a quick definition of what a two pizza team is and why that matters? Yeah, one of the concepts that uh, within Amazon that we have for any project is a two pizza team. And that's really a small team that if you think about maybe not a huge, you know, double, triple, extra large, deep dish Chicago style pizza, but what a typical pizza um, would feed and two pizzas is probably about six to eight people. So it's a small team that is really dedicated and owns that product or owns that solution or owns that deliverable from gestation all the way through to the life cycle of potentially even sunsetting that product as they go forward. So it's a quick nibble team. Um, don't have to worry about too much with internal politics and you know, infighting and everything from there. You own it, you build it, you drive it, and, and it really helps with that that quick action, that quick decision making as we as as companies and internal teams start to move forward. Awesome. Thank you for explaining that one. I I've always loved that concept. Yeah, thanks, Doug. And if I'm being honest, it's probably closer to a one pizza team. Uh, but I will I will, <laughs> I will say that uh, even better. <laughs> I will I will say that the the two pizza team concept was was hugely influential for us early on in our journey, and we still do our best to subscribe to that to this day. We do have some very large uh, portals and port inside of our portfolio that require multiple two pizzas team, but we do try to keep those teams somewhere around the eight to to fifteen. Uh, people, but what I'll tell you is, is with that mindset comes a, a different way of working, and I think that's a great example of what we were able to do with Rudder. So, so we know that um, in in a world where resources are quite scarce, at least in in our world, maybe not AWS's world, uh, we for every resource that I have supporting an application or supporting a product, for every resource that I have supporting middleware that supports a product, that is one less resource that I have working on value for GE Aviation, direct value. Now, I'm not denying that uh, you need middleware and I'm not denying that, that you need application and product support. But for us, it's the goal of limiting that to the minimum viable amount of support so that we can free up additional cycles to go drive new value adds for the business. And, and that was one of the key criteria behind Rudder. The team knew that for them to move on to the next engagement, they had to build something that was essentially self-curating and self-healing. And, and I thought that was a, a, a pretty 
great example of, of what we're trying to do organizationally and just kind of a internal cultural mindset that we have around how we leverage our resources from an operational to new development perspective. Absolutely. And, you know, one thing that you said earlier, Chris, really kind of stuck with me when you said um, leaving enough room for our teams to, you know, experiment, empowering and enabling them. Can you, you know, for someone that's listening, can you give a specific example of like what it really means as a leader to leave room for that kind of space? Is that more of like a time thing or is that less meetings? Can you give an example of that? Oh, it it runs the gamut. Um, I like to tell people, my primary purpose as a leader is to be a barrier deconstructor in an umbrella. And so I had mentioned earlier about an umbrella. Uh, so I'll, I'll spend a, a few moments to double click in on barrier deconstruction. So one of the things that you do to create space uh, for people is, is you make sure that they're not spending cycles waiting. And so uh, often early in the journey and still to this date, if something gets to, to, to my radar, and gets escalated to my point. I don't care where it originates inside of the organization. I make it a priority to go help mm. those people move forward. And so in, in some scenarios that was, you know, early on, I was, I was going to buy surge protectors for the organization as we were re, reconfiguring our physical footprint inside of our office space. Uh, in other mm. scenarios, that's jumping on critical outage information so that I can help pull in the necessary players to help restore service and still other scenarios it's being the face of the organization back to the business and explaining to them why it's important to take a little bit of time to go slow to refactor this application to run fast long term and and that those are just a few examples of barrier deconstruction that i think is hugely important as a leader, and I would append that to being an umbrella, and uh, those two together, among some others, if we have time, uh, I would say are examples of how you create space. Yeah, absolutely. Those are really good examples. Thanks for providing those. And I want to kind of move now a little bit into, you know, looking back on this journey, what were some of the lessons learned? What do you wish that you knew? Can you talk a little bit now about kind of reflecting on the past eight years? What have you learned as a leader? Sure. Um, And I mentioned previously, you know, we, we didn't have a, a, a grandiose plan, per se, to get to the cloud. We kind of learned mm-hmm. as we went. And so I'll, I'll hit come, some of the phases uh, that we haven't really talked about thus far. So early on, it was, it was initially embracing the change and knowing you wanted to work different. We talked about that a little bit. I would say the first phase that we had, I would, I would classify as experimenting in the cloud. Uh, mm-hmm. To be completely honest, we, we had very passionate individuals that were early in their journey that uh, we're still learning. And, and I would you'd say, looking back, we essentially created a virtual data center is what, is what I would say. So we, don't get me wrong. We implemented a lot of automation early on that is better than mm-hmm. what you would see in traditional on-prem footprints. Uh, but at the same time, we still had a huge amount of our workforce supporting said automation and supporting said pipelines. And, and we really... Uh, both neither the, the industry nor ourselves had emerged to a point of, of what we call cloud native. And so we were heavy EC2, heavy S3 consumers. So think compute and storage in the cloud, which is, again, obviously better than on-prem. But we really didn't start to unlock the value of the cloud until what I, I consider to be really our, our phase two, which was uh, the native services years, right? So that was where we really started to push the concept of native services. If something exists in the cloud, that can run the middleware for you and can be supported and is commoditized by a best practice in the industry, use it, right? And mm-hmm. this, this goes back to a bit of that builder mindset that we, we talked about earlier. It's not easy 
uh, when you're a builder to, to leverage something that some, somebody else has built because there's always that that inclination that that little uh, you know voice in the back of your head saying you could do it better uh, but the reality of the situation mm-hmm. is if somebody's commoditized it it's probably best in class at this point and you should move on to something that somebody has not done so mm-hmm. we we have this saying that said uh, that that is just because you can do something doesn't mean you should go mm-hmm. do the things that only you can do and so that's really where we started to to pivot our mindset uh, less from that infrastructure organization to more of that value prop value add business outcome mindset and really focusing mm-hmm. on the distinct things that we could deliver as an organization that was either ip for g aviation or specific to our use cases that wasn't available in the industry and so that was really phase two and and that's where we had that concept of of really knowing your goal and what you're trying to accomplish and then how do you map your cloud strategy to that and so you saw that pivot between that early experimentation into to really that native service mindset um, and then really right now uh, you know with the example of rudders and others it's really about moving up the stack it's how far can we move up the stack uh, in you know with the cloud and on top of the cloud to continue to drive incremental and exponential value for the business and that's where I would say we're, we're currently are um, and, and I, I would just say, with regards to some of the key learnings here, it, it comes down to really making sure you're, you're building applications with as minimal manual touch points as possible. The mm-hmm. less you touch an application, the more resources you free up to drive additional value. And you know, I, I would by no means say we're perfect at this point. And you know, our portfolio runs across various implementations across these phases, but that's really where our head is, is how do we build these fully ephemeral applications that are limiting blast radiuses that allow us to basically deploy a very small fraction of the organization to operational support while freeing up more and more of our, our employees and our, and our resources to go after new ideas and driving new outcomes for the, for the business. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like a really creative workplace too. And um, it's exciting to see what you've been able to accomplish and your teams. Um, so, you know, as we kind of wrap up here and, you know, conclude our episode, I always like to give our speakers a chance to add any concluding thoughts or any points that you, you know, want to add to the story before we, you know, wrap up here. So, I'll start with you, Chris, and then I'll also like to ask Doug if he has any concluding thoughts of, you know, where can you get started today if this episode applies to you? So, Chris, what kind of, you know, takeaways do you have? Sure. Uh, I, the one thing that if you, you haven't picked up uh, yet is it's a journey and it never ends. And that's one thing we constantly talk about. I think many people think of cloud as a destination. Uh, we do not. We, we, intend, we expect and will continue to evolve along our journey in the cloud. Uh, I've talked about a couple phases and a couple pivots. We've had a couple key epiphanies along the way. Uh, the, the last thing I'd like to lead you, leave you with is don't think of it as a destination. Think of it as a journey. Don't be afraid to pivot and reinvent yourself along the way. Uh, right now, we're really focused on, on how do we re-architect some of our VPCs to, to, to be more secure and compliant while simultaneously improving developer productivity. And I think that's on the horizon for us and will probably be the next phase of our evolution. Mm-hmm. And I'm super excited about that. And I'm super excited to learn about others and their journeys and, and some other epiphanies along the way. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And Doug, any final thoughts from you? Yeah, I think there's a, some great takeaways from here. And Chris, thank you for the time today. Um, I think, you know, a couple things that 
people really first, I think, need to identify is where they're at in the journey. Have they identified even the value internally that their division, their operations bring to their first level customer, the business? And then ultimately also the second level customer. So what do they bring to those that they're supplying the ultimate goal to? Once that's identified, it is a heavy lift to make that tilt, make that change into what's going to be a tough um, and hard sometimes thing to look at internally to start that journey, to look at that and go, uh-oh, I need to completely change. You know, if we don't do this, we're not going to be around. So where is that journey starting to go from that standpoint? I think, as you said, rightfully, don't be afraid to fail. You know, failure is as, as long as you're identifying and define what failure is, but also failures lead into bigger successes many times. So identify what that is, identify how a corrective action can start to occur, and then take, take the brakes off, you know, let people move and start to run and, you know, unfold their wings if you want to use a whole nother type of thing from that standpoint and let it go. Um, and, and stand back and just watch because it, it, it starts to really get impressive when people have that capability of what they can start to do. Absolutely. Well, thank you both. I really appreciate your time and uh, thank you so much for the conversation today. No problem, Caroline. Thank you for the opportunity to tell our story and, and thank you for being a great partner partner with us along the journey. Thank you for tuning in to AWS Industrial Insights. If you want to learn more about today's episode, head over to the blog for a list of featured resources on this topic. You can also find today's blog in the episode description and also on our website at aws.amazon.com slash industrial slash podcast.